So we're in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words... Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for Jesus who has saved us, who has given us his righteousness, who has put his spirit within us and caused us to walk in his statutes, who has broke down the heart of stone and given us the heart of flesh, who has given us desires and affections for him. I thank you that you have written down for us words, words that we can read, words that are promised to be living, words that aren't like any other book, that when we study it, God, you speak the God who created everything speaks to us. So we pray, Lord, that these next few moments would be a sobering time for us. That God is going to speak through his word. And so God, give us ears to hear. Increase our affections for Jesus. Change places in our lives that don't that don't find <clears throat> Jesus as our highest affection, change places in our lives where we're clearly not living out the mission that you've designed for us. Father, I pray for help. I know that I'm completely inadequate. And that's really where you want me. That's really where you shine the most. And you get the glory. So I pray that you would use me now to proclaim your excellencies. Help me point to Christ. I pray for all my friends here who are struggling or may not know you or just had a horrific week or have a numerous amount of things going on. That you would speak tenderly kind and compassionately to them right now. We thank you, God, for your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. And so last week, we started a five-week series that started at 935 and is going to extend all the way in chapter 10. So 935 through all of chapter 10 is our five-week series called compassion and commission and so last week was the compassion part and all of chapter 10 is the commissioning the the sending out if you will of being people living out the mission of god living out people being people that are living out this <clears throat> this given missionary experience to us all and so compassion and commission is where we are now because we finished chapter 9 and we're going into chapter 10 we've come to a transition point here where all of 8 and 9 are serving for us to 
to illustrate the authority of Jesus. I don't have time, but, but 8 and 9, we've seen over and over and over that Matthew is writing, trying to help us see Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority over and over. And he's established that for a reason, because as we're moving into 10.1, I mean, right there at 10.1, we're going to see the authority of Jesus that he has established in chapters 8 and 9 extend out and be given to the disciples. Now, this in no way diminishes his own authority. It's not like when it leaves him, he doesn't have it anymore. Um, but th- we're going to see that they're going to receive this as well. So now, um, over 8 and 9, I've been saying, as we're watching 8 and 9, let's all watch and examine and see Jesus interacting with these, these poor souls, these people who are needing a miracle, these people who are desperate or demon-possessed or, or whatever. We're watching Jesus and we're finding ourselves as He's compassionate with people and always meeting their needs that we want to be that, those kinds of people. And we just want to re-fall in love with this beautiful God we serve who is so merciful towards people. Now, chapter 10 is going to serve for us as a, as a transition. We still will do that. We still will watch Jesus interact with people over and over. But now we're going to start seeing Jesus interact with his disciples as well. We're going to see Jesus, how he interacts with them, and specifically um, the way he interacts with them and how he sends them on mission, how he's encouraging them now to be missionaries. And so chapter 10, the next four weeks of compassion and commission, the next four weeks which are really commission-based, uh, are going to be this. Today we're going to look at 115, which is Jesus sending out um, his disciples, his 12 disciples, on a little short-term mission trip just to the people of Israel, only to Jewish people. And then, don't fret, we're going to include the Gentiles. Once we get to verse 16, verse 16 through 23 will be the, the <clears throat> missionary sending to the Gentiles. And then, starting in verse 24, those last two weeks, 24 through 42, we're going to look at several characteristics of a missionary. Several characteristics of a missionary. So we're going to see this commissioning, and hopefully you can see where we're going, how you're going to be sent this week, next week, and what your characteristics of a missionary and what you and I should look like as people who are sent out to be on mission. So that's kind of where we're going right now. Um, And what I'm going to do is a little bit different than what I normally do. Normally, I'll just kind of talk for a little bit, give you a point, then talk for another, you know, hour and give you a second point. Talk for another hour and give you, I'm just, I don't talk that long. It feels like it though. It really does. But what I'm going to do this time for all of us uh, that like to write, um, and maybe you like to write, I'm going to give you all three points right here in the very beginning. And then after you get all three points, um, I want you to put your pen down. Uh, or, you know, if you want to keep writing, but don't clock out with your mind. Stay with me. And we're just going to go verse by verse through 115, so 1 through 15. And just we're going to make observations and point out things that all highlight and illustrate or explain to us those three points. All right. So let me show you these three points and how I get them. And what I want you to see is how I get them. And then we're going to go through. <clears throat> this is what I want you to see. Look at verse one. And we're going to notice three different names that Jesus gives to these 12 disciples. Okay, we're going to look at three different names in these 15 verses really fast. And those are going to be those names are going to serve for us to show us those three points. Look at the first verse. He said he calls to him his 12 disciples. All right. Disciples. He calls them disciples. And then in the next verse, he says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. So he uses the word apostle the second time. And then as we get down to verse 10, he's telling them not to take these things or require these things, bag, journey, tunics, sandals, staff. And then he says, for the laborer. And it's very obvious that he is speaking about them when he calls them laborers. And so we see a progression of three terms that he gives them. And these, these three terms that he gives them will be our three points. And I'll, I'll show you what, what I mean by that. Um, I believe that these three terms are progressively moving in nature to a glorious theme that's given to us in that third one. Let me show you what I mean. All right. Disciple. You can see that he says he called his disciples. He called his disciples. Disciple is just a broad term. It's just a a follower of Jesus. Now, yes, he's saying he calls the 12 disciples here, but the term disciple is just, in in Bible, a broad term talking about people that are coming. He's saying in in this way of mission, he's saying that he's calling them to him. So here's the first one. Here's the first one. These are these are three stages of being called, commissioned and sent out for mission. The first one is the calling. The disciples of Jesus are called to join the mission. They're called to join the mission. Now, this is obvious. Um. This is 
this is pretty obvious that it means that they're saved now. You're not, you can't be called without being a Christian. All right? So for us, if we're going to translate it into our time, this is what it means. Now, I'm going to use the word disciple in all three of these points. And so you're wondering, maybe, when you say disciple, Fudd, are you meaning the disciples and the, as in the 12 disciples? Uh, the disciples of Jesus are? Or are you meaning us, disciples, like because we're followers of Christ? And the answer to that is yes. That's exactly what I mean. I mean both of them. All right? So here we go. Um, the first, first one is the disciples of Jesus are called to join the mission. That's the first stage in mission. Now, notice that the second name he calls them is Apostle. The names of the twelve, and now he uses, why does he switch? Why does he switch terms on us? He could have easily said disciples again. All right, the word Apostle, um, disciples narrow, Apostle moves into a little bit more of a, of a more narrow kind of sense. And this is the first and only time in the book of Matthew that the word apostle is going to be used describing <clears throat> describing them. And what it means is it's denoting or showing that these 12 now are a group of missionaries. So th- their apostleship that's being claimed here is not only are they being called to be disciples, they're also now being called apostles, which means you are now being called my missionaries. Now, what does that mean? Look at verse 1 where it says, He called to him his 12 disciples, and look at this. He gave them authority. 8 and 9 has been over and over painstakingly trying to show us that Jesus has authority. And now he, because he's Christ, is going to give them authority. And this authority is going to be the thing that calls them the apostle, that sends them out now to be on mission. So here's the second one. Here's the second one. Disciples of Jesus are commissioned and given authority to accomplish the mission. They're given authority. So that means, if you are a believer in Christ, you've been called to join the mission, you've also been given authority to accomplish it. If you're in Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So you can't say, well, I agree, Fudd, that I'm probably called to mission, but I just, there's no way I can do that. I mean, that is just so difficult sounding. I am nowhere near equipped. I am not able to do something like that. And because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, the answer is yes, you absolutely can. And you may say, well, I'm a sinner <laughs> and I'm so sinful, there's no way that I can do it. And I'm saying, that's perfect. So when you go and tell other, pe- other sinners that they need to know Christ and they see that you're a sinner, they're going to see then I can be a Christian because you're no different than me. So that's the second one. The disciples of Jesus are commissioned and given authority to accomplish the mission. They're given authority by Jesus and we're given authority, not on our own, it's because of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit to go accomplish the mission. Now we see here in verse 10 that he calls them laborer. He calls them laborer. And in verse 5 it says that after he calls them and after he gives them authority, verse 5 says, and Jesus sent them out. So this laborer is sent. It's being sent. So here's the third one. The disciples of Jesus are sent to labor to finish the mission. To finish the mission. So first, disciples, these are the three stages of being called, commissioned, and sent on mission. And that's what happens for them, and that's what happens for us. It says that the disciples of Jesus are called to join the mission, the disciples of Jesus are commissioned and given authority to accomplish the mission. The disciples of Jesus are sent to finish the mission. And these are the three stages of them and these are the three stages of us. Now I've said that this is a very specific sounding uh, mission trip that's given to them. It's the very first mission trip that Jesus gives people and he gives it to just the 12 disciples and he gives it to the 12 disciples just so that they'll go just to the house of Israel. So this is very specific. And so if we're thinking, well, that sounds pretty specific, but how are you going to say that all that translate in, translates to us as Gentiles, as God's people who are going to tell people about Christ? Well, those are very specific. However, those three principles that, are, that we've said are clear that are lifting out for us as our applications for us. That we're called, we've been commissioned, and we've also been sent. Um, so what I want to do now is just kind of walk through 1 through 15 and make some observations that are going to highlight for us and help us understand those three points a little bit better. All right, so the first thing is we come to verse 1, and he says, And he called to him his 12 disciples. He called to him his 12 disciples. Don't forget 938. Don't forget 938. The first thing he says to him is after, well, 
in 930, he says, pray earnestly the Lord of the harvest to send out labors. He says, pray earnestly. And so in answer to the prayer, in answer telling them, you need to pray that the Lord would send out harvest, people into the harvest. Jesus is going to answer that. The compassion of Jesus was shown as saying, pray earnestly. Now the compassion of Jesus is going to be shown the very next verse to answer the prayer. So Jesus is answering the prayer that he told them to do. He urged them to do this in 938. D.A. Carson talking about the compassion of Jesus that was told to us last week to pray and then the compassion of Jesus who answers prayer immediately. I mean, there's not like 15 verses in between. It's right there the very next thing. He says, as Jesus' compassion moved him to incite his disciples in prayer, so his compassion moved him to train them for ministry to delegate some of his authority to them so that they might preach the message of the nearness of the kingdom of God and display its power among the lost sheep of Israel. So he's calling them. He is taking action right away. And he told us to pray to send workers. And then not only does he specifically tell them to pray. Look at the, Don't miss this. Notice who he tells to pray. In verse 37 it says, Then he, pray, he said, to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. And then he tells in verse 1, then he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them. So, the very people that he urged to pray are the men that were called now to go do the mission. The people that he told to pray are the people that are called to mission. So for us, I mean, the obvious thing that we can say is, the more you pray, the more you find yourself praying to join the mission, the more you're going to find yourself interacting and be involved in the mission. So are you praying to be in the mission? Are you asking God, like he told us in 939, uh, 938, God, send me out into the harvest among the people. I want to be a laborer for you. Are you asking him that? And so he tells us that he's calling them. And then he says, he called from him his 12 disciples. 12 is... Um, analogous to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. And then it says it calls them the disciples, which I've said is a broad term used to <clears throat> describe. And then it tells them he gave them authority. He gave them authority. Now, 8 and 9 told us that he had authority. And now Jesus is giving them authority. Now, notice what he gives them authority to do. Notice what he tells them. It says this in the rest of verse 1. It says, over unclean spirits to cast them out and, watch this language, to heal every disease and every affliction. To heal every disease and every affliction. I mean, if we just go up four verses, watch what Jesus is doing in, in 35. Jesus went out throughout the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And watch this. Healing every disease and every affliction. The authority of Jesus gave him the power to heal every disease and every affliction. And then, when he gives the authority to the apostles, he tells them that they're going to be able to go and heal every disease and every affliction. They are given the ability to do the exact same things that God has been able to do. This isn't some kind of like second-hand, goodwill kind of authority. You're going to kind of halfway measure up. No, it's all, I'm not, nothing against goodwill. All the things that Jesus is able to do, the disciples have been given this exact same authority to be able to accomplish. Which means you who have the power of the Spirit in you have some amazing authority in your life to be able to carry out the mission. Amazing authority. Not because you have somehow earned it, but because Jesus has put God himself in you by the Spirit, and now you're able to do it. That's, that's really good news. So when you're able, and you're asking yourself, can I do this? Am I able to do this? Yes, you can. You absolutely can. And he's given them authority to do what? Do these things. Now, Jesus has told us what his mission is in 913. I just want to, turn you over one page and just review with you what his mission is. In 9.13 it tells us, tells the Pharisees to go and learn what this means, that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. And here's his mission right there in 9.13b, if you will. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The mission of Jesus as he walked around the earth was not to call the righteous, but we're all unrighteous, but to call sinners. And so he's giving them authority now to go and carry out this mission. He's telling them, you are completely suited to accomplish the task to call sinners to repentance. Which means you are, you are, if you're a believer, completely suited. Because you have the Spirit in you to call sinners to Jesus. Even though 
you're just as sinful as they. You are completely suited. That's <laughs> for me. Y'all don't seem to be too emotional about it, but I think that's pretty good news. I, pretty think, I think that's pretty awesome because I know my heart and it's, it's pretty wretched sometimes. Now, what kind of authority does he give them? As we said, it's the exact same authority that he has. And then, if, if not to kind of build our case even more, he lists out this, this misfits of cast of characters for us in 2 through 4. Look what he says. Um, the names of the 12 apostles, notice we've already talked about it. He switches terms for us, talking about now they've been um, commissioned or given authority. And it says this, Simon, who's just a big loud mouth, always speaks before he should, but he's listed first because he's the leader. Um, Simon, uh, who's called Peter and his brother Andrew and James and Zebedee and John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, the doubter and Matthew, humble Matthew. He just kind of lists everybody's name, but he's going to throw in his profession. Matthew, the tax collector, which we've already said means I am a wretched, horrible sinner and I got to be a part of it. No one had high views of tax collectors. Matthew saying, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, which is an Aramaic word for zealot. So there's several, um, this is just kind of on the side, there's several uh, different groups or sects, uh, S-E-C-T of Judaism, Pharisees, Sadducees, zealots, Essenes, and these zealots were just pick up the sword and take the kingdom now. Kill everyone. We're taking it on. He was one of these kinds of guys. Uh, and Judas Iscariot, and then throwing it out there, who betrayed him, just... <clears throat> no one knows who, as we're reading, if, this, if you're completely unfamiliar, he's, he's telling us these people. And so he's, he's taking it from the end of the story and, and porting it back. It's not like he's just, I mean, why would he say that? Because it's going to happen to the end. So he's, he's looking at the back and coming in here. And so he's telling us these 12 disciples. And these 12 disciples are just remaking his case that, um, and gives more weight that the authority that Jesus gives is not because of us, but because of these guys. These guys were not necessarily impressive figures then. I mean, obviously, we look back in the 12 disciples. I wonder if I could have been one of the 12. No, I couldn't have. I definitely couldn't have because I wasn't born then. But um, these guys are, these guys are in, this, in this list, thinking, or we're thinking these aren't very impressive names, which means we have a promise that we have the authority of Christ and we can carry out the mission if these guys can. That's the point. Um, and now... We're moving into chapter five, I'm sorry, verse five. And it says, Jesus, the 12, Jesus sent out instructing them. Now, you'll notice starting at the midpoint of five, all the way through 10, it all, if, if you have the red letter Bible, it all turns red. And so in Matthew, in its big, huge structure, Matthew set up to have five major teaching discourses. The Sermon on the Mount was the first one, and this for us is the second of five major teaching discourses. And that's where we're going here, where Jesus is going to send them out and instruct them. And this is what he tells them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's telling them to only go preach to Israel, not to the Gentiles, which we know is coming in verse 16 and following. And he tells them specifically, go to the lost sheep of just remember, as we talked about last week, this sheep-shepherd metaphor that's continually employed in the book of Matthew is only showing us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one of the Old Testament. And Matthew wants to continually use as much language as he can to point these Jewish listeners back to the Old Testament scriptures to remember this man, Jesus, is the Savior of the world. So he tells them, um, Jesus uses this term, but only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he's showing... Um, well, the first question we have to ask is this. All right, why is it that Jesus is saying, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans who were kind of half Jewish, half Gentile, um, only go to those who are, who are Jewish? And I think there's really two reasons here. The first one is, uh, most commentators said it's pragmatic. I'm not sure if it's that good of a reason, but maybe. Um, they were in Galilee, and so where they were just geographically, uh, Jewish people were there. And if they had gone out of Galilee to the Samaritans or to the Gentiles, then this short-term mission trip that he's sitting on would have turned into a long-term mission trip, and that wasn't what he wanted. So he, you know, he wanted, since they were in Galilee, to just to go to the Jews. Maybe, but I think there's a much better, not just pragmatic reason, but theological, which is Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Jews first before he's the king of the world. And his people, whom he loves and has affections for, are Israel. Let me just read one verse to you in Matthew uh, 23 
that shows his deep affection for them. In verse 23, this is towards the end of his life, when he's lamenting over Jerusalem, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, uh, and, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. I mean, you can just feel the angst in his voice about how much he loves his people Israel. And so the reason why he's sending them first to the people of Israel is because this is his people, this is his house, and this is the people that he loves. He loves the Gentiles, no question. But it makes the most sense since he is the king of the Jews that his first missionary endeavor of his disciples would be done to the house of Israel first. And this is shown to us in verses like Romans 1.16 where it says first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Or Romans 2.9-2.10, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This is... This is a pattern of the way uh, the Bible, the New Testament shows us. And so this is what's going on here. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love us Gentiles. He loves us. Um, That's why he died for us. But first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, because he's the savior of the Gentiles and of the Jews. Um, And then he says this in verse 7, And proclaim as you go saying, and proclaim as you go saying, Um, a couple things in this phrase, pretty Literally, this phrase is, and, and through your journey, preach the gospel saying. Through your journey, and this is through this missionary experience that he's saying. And I think it's interesting that he uses two verbs to talk about speaking. He uses saying, but then in addition to using saying, he uses proclaim. The Greek word keruso. Keruso is to herald. To herald is to bring news. And so he's saying that as you are going preach sometimes it's this verb keruso is is translated to preach because we're preaching good news so he's telling them to proclaim to preach as you're going which is exactly what we are supposed to do as we are going through our life we see this in matthew 28 as we're going through our life that we are to preach we are to be a herald a proclaimer there's some news that's happening that everybody needs to know about this man jesus died for you and so he says, as you're going, proclaim this, tell people about this, literally, Caruso, herald this gospel. And what is this message? What is this gospel? Here it is, herald this thing, and it is right here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I think in verses 1 through 15, verse 7 serves as our centerpiece of verses 1 through 15. It kind of, this is the message we have, and it tells us, it kind of grows out to verses 115 as our centerpiece. The centerpiece for all of us, what is our message as Christians? As we're grow, going through life, proclaim this gospel, herald it out, telling them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This phrase um, was used in 3.2. And in 4.17, in 3.2, and it's talking about John the Baptist, he was telling people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In 4.17, it said that Jesus was going out telling people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what he's saying is literally that I am here. The long-awaited kingdom and king is now here. The Messiah has come to purchase his, his family of Israel and obviously Gentiles. And so this is our message Jesus has come to save you. That's the centerpiece here. And then he tells them in verse 8 to do these things. Now remember, he's given them authority to do these physical acts of healing. And he tells them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. Now, this sounds a lot like 10.1, where it's told them to... uh, unclean spirits to cast them out heal every disease and every affliction so we know that he's given them authority to go do this and we've also talked about this many times these four things in verse 8 healing the sick raising the dead cleansing the lepers casting out demons these are all physical things that are happening in the lives of people they have some kind of physical problem and this miracle is done to them not as an end in of itself but to illustrate the spiritual reality which needs to happen in us all so whenever he heals someone is sick they're going to say you need to spiritually be healed of your sickness of sin 
Whenever he raises the dead, he says, you're dead spiritually and you need to be made alive spiritually. When he cleanses the lepers, he's showing them that their sin has made them wretchedly polluted and they need to be cleansed completely of their sin or their leprosy. When he casts out the demons, he's taking them and he's casting them out from the dominion of the darkness and sending them and casting them into the dominion of light or the kingdom of the sun, like Colossians 1 says. So these physical things always are illustrating for us the spiritual reality that's happening. And one other thing that we should see here, um, in verse 8, as Jesus sends his disciples out into these apostles, I'm sorry, into these people who are Jewish, and he's telling them to do these things, heal the sick, raise the dead. He's not telling them to go to specific people that have things and like, oh, you look rich and you look like you're pretty... um, needing things, so I'm just going to heal your sickness, and oh, I'm going to do... He's telling them, the language of it seems to be that they are to be very indiscriminate on who they minister to. <laughs> and so should we. We should be very indiscriminate about who we minister to. There's not particular classes of people that you should only minister to. Everyone around you needs to hear Christ, rich or poor, white or black, um, from America, not from America, if they're a Clemson fan, if they like country music, I mean, if they have these flaws, they need to be here, Christ. That's kind of a joke, obviously. All right, um, so we are not to be discriminate. We're to be very indiscriminate. And, and also, <clears throat> just notice that there's no change in the format of the mission either. There's no change. It's not like Christ has a different mission for all of us. It's go preach the gospel. He tells them, preach the gospel. And as you're preaching the gospel, meet the physical needs over and over and over throughout all the Bible. Your format, the format has never changed. Preach the gospel, meet, ab- meet needs. There's abundant evidence that this took place as well, that these, uh, and these disciples, as they went out and as they were sent, actually did heal people. They actually did cast out demons. They actually did cleanse lepers. And so they, they did these things, which is amazing. Now, As we're going into the second half of verse 8, it tells us this. You received without paying, give without pay. You received without paying, give without pay. John Calvin, as he's going to comment on this verse, first wants to point us to Isaiah 55.1 to use as as a means by explaining this you received without pay. Now, give without pay. Isaiah 55.1 says this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. So if you're thirsty, come to these waters. And specifically, we want you to come who have no money. If you have no money, perfect, come. And then it says, come buy and eat. How are you going to buy if you have no money? Because it's free. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So... What we're seeing here in verse 8, this you received without paying, give without pay, meaning it didn't cost you anything to hear and receive the gospel of the kingdom. Therefore, go out now and proclaim it free of charge. Take no pay for it. And when you're doing it, show them that this message is absolutely a free gift for them to receive, that they can be saved by Jesus. They do not have to earn it with any of their works whatsoever. It's all been done. All the work has been done by Jesus and that they can be saved completely. Um, In other words, he tells them, as you're going out, proclaiming this gospel message that's free, don't try to take financial advantage over others. Instead, learn that God's going to take care of you. And he he explains that out in verses 9. Look what he says. He tells them, acquire no gold or silver. Remember, he's sending them on a little short-term mission trip. Very short-term. So these things that we're going to see in verses 9 and 10 are things that are not needed on a short-term mission trip. Um, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, no sandals, nor staff. And I thought you were thinking, well, all right, I don't need any of those things for my mission trips. Um, and he's just telling them, no, you don't need to take these things. Instead, don't try to take financial advantage. I want to send you out to not have anything. And as I'm sending you out to not have anything, I want you to see that as you proclaim the gospel and people get converted, I want you to see my sovereign providential hand move in the life of them and cause them to be 
hospitable and generous and take care of your needs, the, the laborer. I want you to trust me completely. I want you to see that I am going to take care of you. So he, sell, he tells them, acquire no gold, da-da-da, acquire no tunics, no sandals, no staff. And then he makes this argument right here for making an argument because the laborer deserves his food. The laborer deserves his food. So this, this word laborer, this name, doesn't seem to have any kind of special meaning behind it. It's just worker. It's a worker. But as I've talked about, we've moved from disciple to apostle. And I think this, is, this isn't like a step down in title, but a step up in title. This is a worker. A man who has calloused hands. Remember, in 938... What word he used. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So this title that he gives his disciples of, you're a laborer, you're a worker, you're a calloused hand, get it done, soul harvester of mine. You're not just called as a disciple. You're not just an apostle who has been given authority. You are going to be a laborer, a worker, one who's going to harvest souls, the kind of Christian that is going to get to see a lot of unbelievers become believers. I want to use you so that you see people crossing over from death to life. I mean, being called a disciple, a follower, is absolutely astounding. Being called a missionary, knowing that you've been given authority is beautiful, but knowing that I get to be the kind of person that leads people to Jesus. This person was going to go to hell because God used me to proclaim them. I get to be called a laborer and they will meet Jesus. That's the title that I want to be called. I I love being called a disciple. I want to be called a missionary. But I want to be called a worker. Someone who has calloused hands and calloused knees and sees tons of people come to Christ. This is a beautiful term that he uses. And I think that all of us would agree that we want to be a worker. A harvester of souls. A reaper of lost souls. And he says, the laborer deserves his food. If you're going to work for me, I'm going to take care of you. If you're going to work for me, I'm going to take care of you. Find, and verse 11 says, in whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy. Now, for the hyper-Calvinist, this is not like the declaration verse that you can pull out and say, well, that means that whenever I'm going to proclaim the gospel, I have to wait for signs of election first, and then I'll tell them. That is a ridiculous understanding of the verse not so ever if you don't know what i'm talking about i think that's even better i think it's even better you don't even know what i'm talking about um but esv study bible you probably half of y'all have them i I think it explains it pretty well it just says someone who responds this says find someone who is worthy what does that mean it just means someone who responds positive positively to the uh disciples message someone who responds positively to the disciples message or da carson says it even a little bit better i think he says don't shop around for the most comfortable living quarters when we're talking about finding someone who's worthy instead find someone who is willing and able to receive an apostle of jesus and the gospel of the kingdom and when you find them that's where you should go god has providentially brought those things about and then it says in verse 12 as you enter the house greet it and as you enter the house, this is insinuating that they are going home to home to home to home. What a great application for us that we are to go home to home or person to person, crazy family member to crazy family member, co-worker to co-worker, student to student, roommate to roommate. We are to go on and on and on and on and keep moving throughout the people in our life proclaiming the gospel to them. It's insinuating that you're going to go preaching to many people. And it tells them, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, we've already talked about what that means, um, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. In other words, be thankful for those who serve you. In verse 12, when it says, as you enter the house, greet it. Be thankful to those who are serve you. Greet them, be kind to them. And if they will receive you, stay. If they will not receive you, don't stay. That's just basically exactly what it means. It's not anything difficult. Um, And 
Then it says in verse 14, if anyone, here it is, will not receive you or listen to your words, and I think that that's a good explanation, that the phrase will not receive you or listen to your words is a good way to understand verse 13, because verse 13 seems a little confusing. Um, If they don't want to hear the gospel of the kingdom, then shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Shake the dust from your feet. Calvin explains what this shake the dust from your feet has become a popular colloquialism for us, a, co- a popular phrase whenever, I'm just going to shake the dust off my feet for, with y'all. Um, Calvin explains it pretty well. He says that this was a first century Judean custom, and it's a little bit more maybe than we, the colloquialism lends. It's a little bit more of a sharper thing when you literally shake the dust. The message that's being sent is not kind of like, oh, I'm just kind of exacerbated with you, forget you, and I'm leaving. Instead, it's, um, he says that this is intended that whenever you're walking out of a city, to declare to the inhabitants of that city, when you walk out, that they're all looking, that you start shaking the dust. It's intended to show them that they are so polluted, that they are so vile with their sin, that the very ground of the entire city, which you trod upon, was so infected with disgust, that when you walk out, you're going to shake the infection off of your feet, and you don't want any of their pollution going anywhere. You don't want it to infect any other city. So it's a, it's a pretty inflammatory thing that you're saying, I think y'all are wretchedly sinful. And I'm shaking the dust. And Jesus is telling them, shake the dust off of your feet. So what does that mean? Spurgeon, when he's explaining shake the dust off your feet, says this. Do this openly. Do this openly. So there is a sense in which whenever someone is not willing to listen, we are to... Openly make sure they know that they are a sinner against a holy God. Not in a way that makes us seem any better. But he says this, and do this openly so that you have to be honest with them, and in the most solemn, it breaks your heart to not, whenever you see a sinner, not want to come to Christ. In the most solemn and instructive manner, you want them to see and understand, hoping that your departing act may be remembered. So you're literally, for us, you're not going to, as you walk out of their house, (laughs) shake the pollution off their seat. I'm shaking your wicked pollution off my feet. That's, that would be insane. But we are going to say, with broken hearted angst, if you will, that we want them to come to Christ because outside of knowing Christ, they will perish eternally in hell. And that breaks our heart. And then it says, um, why is he telling us to shake off the dust of our feet? And, and this is just, why not stay? Why not keep staying? And I think this is maybe the best way to understand it. Everyone in the world needs to hear the gospel. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. And we need and we want as many people to hear the gospel as we possibly can and receive the gospel. However, none of us live forever. We're all giving a very short time here. Our average age is 75 years old. And if you come to Christ later, that means you even have a shorter time to be a missionary for Jesus. And so because of that, we want to maximize our missionary efforts as much as possible. And if people are like this, they will not receive or will not listen to our words. We need to have the discernment by the power of the Spirit to know how much time is proper for sharing the gospel with them and how much, um, if and when the time comes for us to move on to wider fields move on to the harvest somewhere else. I don't know that time. I'm not going to actually say, oh, after a year, then you, you leave them. I have no idea. I'm going to say, if you're, a, if you're praying and seeking the Spirit's face and asking, how long should I stay? I totally believe the Spirit will give you an idea whenever the time comes that you're supposed to shake the dust off your feet. This is a... This is kind of a scary way to understand. I don't know the answer. I know it's very, it could be very confusing to say, is now the time, is now not the time. Don't make that decision by yourself. Pray a lot. Ask people around you that are, that are strong believers and, and use the Spirit's discernment, not your own. It, it can't be that they just get on your nerves, now it's time to move on. It can't be because we all get on everybody's nerves because we're all quirky with sin. All right, and then he tells us this. Verse 15 is not a... Uh, Not just kind of like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Verse 15 is an amazingly stunning verse. He says, shake off the dust of your feet when you leave that house or town. Then he says, truly I say to you, 
This is something we've heard many times, probably. Truly I say to you, and that's just driving home the absoluteness of this statement, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Sodom and Gomorrah were two towns who were wickedly, wickedly polluted, sinfully, in Genesis. We don't have time to go into it, but these are two cities that were just... They serve over and over in the New Testament to be cities that people point back to just to be as an illustration of rampant wickedness. And this is very interesting. And why I think this is so stunning. He says that it's going to be more bearable on the judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Remember, this missionary endeavor was to the people of Israel, the keepers of the law, those who thought they were righteous. They did not have wicked, rampant evil like Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's saying that it's going to be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah, horribly wicked on the outside, than for these law keepers. How is that possible? J.C. Ryle, explaining this, says this. Men are apt to forget that it does not require great open sins like Sodom and Gomorrah, to be sinned in order to ruin a soul forever. They have only to go on hearing without believing. They have only to keep listening without repenting. They have only to keep going to church without going to Christ. And by and by, they will find themselves in hell. By and by, they will find themselves in hell. So this is simply stunning when he's saying that Sodom and Gomorrah, who were wickedly notorious for their sin, these, sin, these sins are not near as guilty, are not near as bad as people who think they're righteous, who are completely not, that consider themselves godly, who re- keep rejecting. They keep hearing the message, but reject it. They keep listening, but not repenting. They keep, as for us, fast forward to the 21st century, coming to church and being around these things, but never coming to Jesus. This is a great warning for us all to not be people that just hear or listen or go to church, but be people who believe, who repent and come to Christ as our only hope. If there's vestiges of self-righteousness, if there's vestiges of works righteousness in you, if there's things inside of you that think, I still have to do in order to have this relationship, that's legalism. That's the warning being given to these people. Jesus, in verse 15, I know this is kind of a missionary discourse, but Jesus in 15, if we kind of take away our minds from the missionary teaching of discourse and just think about the fact that he's talking about judgment, he says it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment. When he talks about judgment there, there's a Christological implication. There's a, something that's being taught to us out of this text about Jesus, which is he has the right to judge. This is only a right that God has. He's showing us again, That he's God and he has the right to judge. Final judgment over peoples and cities is reserved for him. And so you can't get away from this. If you're a legalist at heart, Christ one day will see that and you'll be judged. So to conclude, for those of you who don't know Christ, or maybe you are walking in this this idea that you think works righteousness saves you, there's a warning here that you are being called to believe and repent and trust Christ. And for those of you that are Christians, you have come to Christ. This entire set of verses is wanting to show you that you are called, you have been given authority to serve on mission, and now you're being sent out to finish it. And so let's, let's conclude this set of verses with verse 8. You received without paying give without pay. You receive the gospel if you're in Christ freely. He did all the work and gave you the faith to believe. 
And so he's asking you now. You've been called. You've been given the authority through Christ. And you have been sent on to finish the mission. He's saying, go proclaim this gospel message freely to others. Don't sit around at just being called. And waste your 70 years of missionary experience. Join the mission. Go home to home. And so as we go into our time of response, the simple question is, if you're not a believer in Jesus, believe, repent, come to Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, take this time to respond and think, think, where am I? Am I just called and sitting, not being a missionary? Or am I realizing that he has given me the spirit and have all the authority of Christ to accomplish the mission, not because of me, but because of him who gave it to me? And am I going to go and be sent and finish the mission? Are you in the mission at all? Are you praying about it? Are you thinking about it? Think about these things. And as we're in our time of response, ask God to show you where you need to be sent, to show you who you need to pray for. Think about who are the homes you need to go to. Let's pray. What a beautiful text, God, that as we go, we're to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and we are to go without paying because we have been giving without paying. This is a free message to anyone and you've told us to go be a part of it. So God, it is a beautiful thing to be called a disciple. It's even more beautiful to be called in, in the first century as they were called apostle for us, missionary. But Lord Jesus, may we all be found to be called the title laborer, worker, calloused hands and reaper of souls. Those who get to participate in the harvest. Those who get to see people meet Jesus in front of our very eyes because you gave us the words to speak. God, give us all that. We, we desperately, if we're honest, want to see people meet Jesus because of us. We all want to be given the title laborer. Help us see it. Equip us and send us. And Lord, if you would, give that to us. Let us see it. It would be so encouraging for our souls to be able to lead someone to Christ. Oh, the comfort we would receive from that to know we're part of your missionary experience, to see a soul cross over from eternal death to eternal life. Be with us now as we respond. As we respond. And for, the, for those of us that need to pray and think, maybe repent, maybe just dwell in your comfort and love. Help us feel that, Lord, as we stand and sing and worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.